0: Bad news.
1: Bad news for the state.
0: Bad news for capital.
2: Bad news for patriarchy.
0: Bad news for all forms of domination.
2: Bad news. Angry voices from around the world.
0: Our monthly info show from anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio projects worldwide.
3: If these news are bad, I don't want to be good. Welcome.
4: Welcome to the 51st episode of Bad News, Angry Voices from Around the World, a mostly monthly radio show hosted by different participating members of the A-Radio network, this month presented by the Anarchist Radio Vienna. In this month's show we have quite a few different segments. We will start with A-Radio Berlin with a segment about the fascist attack of Halle, Germany happened in 2019. After this there will be a segment from the final straw radio about the anarchist anti-fascist activist and Rojava veteran Daniel Baker who is currently serving a 44 month sentence in the so-called USA. The third contribution is an update from Frequence A radio collective about an ongoing case in Russia. After this we will get some news from Greece from Free Social Radio 1431 AM. The fifth segment will be an interview with comrades from Bulgaria about recent neo Nazi and police attacks on the anti authoritarian community done by Jenna Luknia from Radio Student from Ljubljana. And last but not least, there will be a segment from Anarchist Radio Vienna about two anarchist long term prisoners who are in prison since 25 and 35 years. In between we will play some angry music and hope that you will enjoy this month's show. Before we begin with the segment from A-Radio Berlin, some music from Paragraph 119. <laughs>
5: On October 9, 2019, two years ago, a fascist terrorist attack happened in Halle an der Saale. The assassin tried to murder countless people. Two people died. The perpetrator is a follower of neo-fascist ideology, which perpetrates and justifies anti-Semitic, racist and anti-feminist terror. Last year, there was a large demonstration in Halle on the Memorial Day, and the trial of several months, beginning in June 2020, in which the assassin was sentenced and which was accompanied by anti-fascists. On the occasion of a vigil on the 22nd of September 2020, many voices of affected and people in solidarity were already collected. You can listen to them on the YouTube channel Manwache Halle Prozess.
6: And so the question becomes like, not how did Halle happen? Or how could we let Halle happen? Or how could the police let Halle happen? But more like, What in the society made him think that he would be accepted for what he did? Like, what made him think that he would be welcomed with open arms? So Yom Kippur is a really important holiday in the Jewish calendar. Uh, It's a day of repentance, it's a fast day, it's supposed to be one of the holiest holidays of the year. So we went there to support the community in Halle. And there was maybe 10 to 15 of us from Berlin. The synagogue can be kind of a difficult place sometimes, but anyway, we were like trying to reclaim it somehow. So me and my friends were like really trying to get into the, uh, the prayers and find something beautiful in them and like sing them behind our gender separation. Um, and yeah, and then it was the morning and it was the part of the services where they're talking about a sacrificial goat. And uh, then we heard a boom. Um, and like boom, 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 boom. I can remember looking to my right, where it was my American friends sitting, and they immediately knew what was going on, because we have so many uh, mass shootings in the US. And the other people were like a bit confused. There were like a lot of inf- there was a lot of information being passed around. Uh, there are three shooters. There's one shooter. It's just children with firecrackers having a good time. There was this moment where we were like waiting for someone to come to our rescue or something. We were like, okay. And then we realized nobody was coming to our rescue. And so we just tried to organize some kind of uh, safety for us. This involved like trying to get most of the congregants in a separate room, barricading the doors, going upstairs. We, We took like blankets and we tried to make like ropes out of them so that we could like jump out of the window if need be. And this disorientation and confusion happened for a long time or what felt like a long time, but was really like, 20 minutes before the police came. The media made it seem as if we were passive victims. I remember reading an article and like the, the trauma that came from just reading the article and, and being placed in this like victim status, right? You're, they're like, ah, oh, oh, the Jews, like another, another horrible anti-Semitic attack happened to the Jews. Aside from this passivity or this victimization, this immediate victimization, there was also a sense of Uh, focusing on the Jews, that leaves out the fact that the Anschlag in Halle was not only an anti-Semitic attack, but also an anti-feminist and a racist attack. The first person in the line of fire was a woman, and the, the way that he talks about this woman is, I don't feel bad for killing her, because how dare she speak back to me? That's not her place. In the donor shop as well, he, he said this, right? Like, as soon as I couldn't get into the synagogue, I started shooting for skin color. And if you focus on Hala being an anti-Semitic attack, then it's easy to say, fine, we put more police cars in front of the synagogue. We put 24 hour police presence in front of the synagogue. The Jews are safe. Our problem is over. And we should have just had police there in the first place because, of course, the Jews are going to get attacked. If you have a police car follow every Jewish child home from Kita to their house, the problem is still not over because the problem is this racist mentality that's ingrained in the society. The trial starts on the 21st. It's set to go for a couple of months. I'm a co-plaintiff in the trial, along with uh, 10 to 15 other people, maybe more by now. And what we're really focused on in the trial is making sure that this is seen as a larger issue, breaking the lone shooter mentality and pointing at a structural problem of racism, anti-Semitism in German society. There's a narrative that Stefan and people like him were radicalized on the internet and they're like alone in their rooms and they just spend the whole day just like in these internet holes. And this like notion of the lone wolf or um, the insultator, it's like, It makes it more palatable for society because they're like, oh, okay, that's not a structural problem with racism that we have. That's just one crazy guy who like made a gun in his house. He's inspired by other people who have committed mass shootings before, such as Christchurch or Pittsburgh or Orlando. But he's also inspired by the murder of Walter Lubke, for example. He's also inspired by the actions of previous Nazis. He's also inspired by uh, everyday racism. He's also inspired by the tide of racism in politics that's becoming normalized in Germany and in the world. In many ways, the trial in Halle feels like a show trial. From the beginning, we know what's going to happen. He's going to go to jail, probably for a long time. And still, that doesn't solve the problem and still it doesn't feel like justice has happened because the trial of, or the murder of Uri Jalo is still unsolved or the questions around NSU 2.0 are still open or the questions around Nazis or racist people in the military and in the police force and in the judicial system are still unsolved because the problem that puts migrants leftists, feminists, Jews, in danger is still there, even if this one man goes to jail.
5: We would also like to draw your attention to the fact that the book Der Halle Prozess – Mitschriften has been published on November 15th. I quote,
7: The 900
5: pages of
2: transcripts document in a detailed way the proceedings as well as all testimonies by the joint plaintiffs, the witnesses and the experts. On October 9th, 2019, the Jewish Jom Kippur holiday, a right-wing extremist, attacks first the synagogue in Halle, then a döner food stand nearby. He kills two persons and tries to kill 68 others in Halle and Wiedersdorf. Since July 2020, he is being tried at the Higher Regional Court of Naumburg. Faced with unrelenting anti-Semitism and racism, as well as the failure of the public authorities against right-wing terrorism, the publishers decided to transcribe all 26 days in court. Their transcripts show in detail how right-wing violence emerges in the midst of society and how the state deals with it. Primarily, though,
5: they illustrate what the affected persons have to say. You can find this book at Spector Books Leipzig. This year, on the occasion of the commemoration, there was an all-day vigil at the Steintor in Halle. There, audios were played and text installations were shown. In addition, there was also an anti fascist blockade action because two Nazi demos were also registered in Halle on October 9th. One of them could be blocked very successfully. The neo-Nazis could not leave their initial rally. Finally, there was a big commemorative rally in the evening, where about 500 people gathered. You will hear excerpts from the speeches there in a moment. What all the speeches of this evening had in common was, on the one hand, the mourning for the victims of the attack and the mourning with the victims of the attack. On the other hand, the call to recognize the events of October 9th, 2019 for what they have been. Neo-fascist terror and expression of anti-semitic, racist, anti-feminist structures in our society, part of pervasive relations of domination and neo-fascist organizing. Nevertheless, commemoration also always raises questions. For example, There are different positions on the police presence that has prevailed in front of the synagogue in Halle since then. Some welcome it as a long-overdue protective measure. Others think that the police presence cannot solve the problem of structural discrimination or consider the police presence an additional discriminatory threat. How does good media relations work in the context of trauma? It's important to amplify voices of those affected. But the traumatizing experiences of people should not be cannibalized for our own reporting. It's important not to downplay the violence that happened there, but at the same time not to victimize the survivors. How do we deal with it when those affected do not find themselves reflected in the way we commemorate? Be it because the communities are not in harmony with each other, because styles and codes are simply too different, or actions are organized by mistake on the Sabbath or similar. Commemoration has so many different functions. My impression from talking to people present was that many times we try to pour all these different functions into one action, which is impossible. It is worth trying to give our remembrance different forms, for all the things we need. Space to mourn, to remember the deceased, moments of anger, of revenge, of resistance, activities of outreach, of awareness and education and rituals of healing, of community, of belonging. Right-wing terror seeks to demonstrate unbelonging. That's part of the hurt it inflicts, which we can address. We can counter the isolation and fear with cohesion. Again and again, the importance of psychological and material solidarity is emphasized. Right-wing violence also causes economic damage to those it affects. People are injured and traumatized, perhaps unable to continue working. The former Döner shop For example, one of the sites of the 2019 attack also had major financial worries as a consequence. Especially since the city of Halle promised a 20,000 euro grant for renovation work, of which it then paid only 10,000 euros. Material solidarity is often forgotten, but it's actually quite simple. Material damage is much easier to repair than many others. The former dinner shop has now reopened its doors on the 22nd of November 2021. The restaurant is now called Tekiz. It's a Turkish breakfast coffee and wants to be a place of encounter and neighborhood. Here too, I'll quote briefly.
7: Our
2: thanks go to all the people that supported the cafe in any form and that are here with us. To all the people that supported us with their knowledge or donations at the quite complicated
5: reconstruction. After these dark days... We hope for a better time. In this sense, greetings to all active anti-fascists and those who want to become ones. We need each other, we need you, so take good care of yourselves. This was the contribution from A Radio Berlin. And before we go
4: to the segment about Daniel Baker, some more music. Brother Inferior, one for the resistance.
8: Republic and the road up and away stand up ready for we are to make our claim. fight for our freedom
9: They, still, they kidnapped yes. our yoga teacher.
7: <laughs> 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 but they really did. This is war. <laughs>
0: on January 15th, 2021, two men received a knock on the door of their Tallahassee apartment from someone claiming to be delivering a Postmate parcel. The two hadn't ordered anything, and that raised suspicion that someone was trying to break in and rob their home. So they said they didn't order anything and refused to open the door. Moments later, the door crashed open with a percussive grenade ignited by the FBI as they swarmed in with guns drawn and yelling. This was the arrest of U.S. military veteran, YPG volunteer medic, and instructor of yoga and jiu-jitsu Daniel Baker on charges of inciting violence at Florida's state capitol. This may sound like a familiar story of government arrests across the country since the January 6th far-right riot to stop the counting of ballots that Trump supporters and avowed white nationalists engaged in, The difference lies in the fact that Dan Baker wasn't calling for the storming of anything. The FBI alleged during this case that he made posts online calling for people to resist an attempted coup that elements of the far right had been promoting since the failed acts of January 6th in DC, where armed putschists would take state capitals and public officials hostage. So why was the FBI targeting Mr. Baker? Why was he not allowed private meetings with lawyers during his time of detention prior to his conviction? Why was he kept in solitary confinement during his pretrial period at the Federal Correctional Institution in Tallahassee? Now let's hear from Dan Baker's supporters, Eric and Jack.
9: We had just been in Tallahassee for maybe 5 or 6 months when he was arrested. He had some roots in the community here and uh, you know we were trying to meet you know make friends and network with you know local uh, activist circles. And just try to participate in the best way he could. Dan had gone through the um, combat lifesaver training with the army, and had applied it during his time in Syria. So he was uh, very valuable as a street medic. You know, from what I understand, whenever people come back from from Rojava, often they're sort of briefed at the airport, and you know, a lot of times they're just discouraged from getting involved in politics or activism or anything like that. But uh, you know, Dan was just very he's you know, he's very committed to to his beliefs and to, you know, social justice and uh he you know, is kinda of one of those rare individuals who like, you know, is willing to, you know, go to prison or like put himself in, in harm's way for the sake of protecting others. And uh you know, I think that's that's kinda of something, yeah, that's like a fundamental part of his uh, character. We kind of had a feeling something like this could happen because we had also been previously stopped by FBI in Seattle during the time we were there. They had just rolled up to us in a parking lot after this one shooting had happened to question us about things that they had seen online. Basically, like, you know, he just told them that he had already made his public commentary uh, on Twitter, and that was, like, basically all he had to say about it. So they just kind of let us continue on, and... uh, as far as I know, they've been observing him as as long as as long as I can remember. Like you know, he was saying, I think he got back in like 2018. So like, I think he said they've been pretty much observing him and stopped. I've seen him post about being stopped a few times already. So it seems like he's kind of been under regular surveillance for a long time.
0: And y'all were up in Seattle doing, or he was doing medic work around the the autonomous zone period, right? Where there were a few shootings, I know. So it, it seems to make sense that. He would be around when there's some sort of violence showing up, like running towards the trouble in order to, to mitigate the harm that's been caused to help save life. Here the guests talk about the use of anti-protest law that has been increasingly put on law books around the U.S., at least since the Standing Rock protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2016, often legalizing vehicular attacks on people blocking roadways. Jack and Eric speak about the law promoted by Florida Republican Governor DeSantis as a trend of piling up criminal penalties when people engage in political protest which is applied primarily to people on the anti-racist, ecological, and left side of the spectrum.
7: In Florida, there's this anti-protest bill, um, and they're saying that it's going to be DeSantis, the governor, introduced it during the Black Lives Matter demonstrations and then reintroduced it. Uh, It got a lot of backlash, and then he reintroduced it after the events that unfolded at the Capitol on January 6th. And he's saying that it's to fight extremism, but, you know, the way that some of the speakers at the most recent protests explained it is there are already laws against rioting. There's already laws against looting. And what these, you know, anti-protest laws, these, you know, felony charges do is make it more expensive um, and keep make the sentences longer for anybody who breaks those laws. And then they are unequally you know, distributed and used primarily against left-wing activists, but most recently they're coming out of this idea that it's to stop right-wing extremists. There are 26 states that have introduced bills like this since the what happened on January 6th, and what's being introduced in Florida isn't even the worst one. There are some that are actually trying to make it so that It is a 30-year prison time felony charge for organizing a protest. Um, And then the way that the DeSantis bill is defining a protest is a group of nine or more people blocking traffic at an intersection, which would include every demonstration that the Black Lives Matter protest had. And it also uh, tries to make it so that there is no option for bail. For people who are arrested uh, for these protest charges, it tries to make them felonies, uh, which, you know, in addition to stripping people of the right to vote, it also makes it so that they can't work state or federal jobs. The way that felony charges are used against people in Florida are just really disastrous. Many, many bills like this have sprung up in over half the country as a result of what happened on January 6th, but they're going to be disproportionately used against leftist activists versus the white-wing extremists that they're claimed to have started from. Oh yeah,
9: also the uh, the bill protects anyone who does bodily harm to protesters, so so they're already willing to make allowances to protect property, but if anyone tries to protect another person, that's terrorism. So that's kind of like, you know, really, he, what he was doing is counterterrorism. but if they admit that, then they'll have to admit that Trump is a terrorist, and he appointed them. <laughs> But uh, also damaging a statue can be punishable for up to 15 years. And it also allows the state to override any municipality that wants to decrease police budgets.
7: Yeah. So the way that they have it is if a municipality votes to decrease their own police budget, it has to be approved by DeSantis in order to defund the police.
0: On October 12, 2021... Dan Baker was sentenced to 44 months in federal prison for, quote, interstate communication of threats, unquote, for his Facebook posts and his militant anti-fascism, including his time fighting Daesh or ISIS in Rojava. His defense crew is appealing the ruling, but otherwise he's expected to be released at the soonest in March of 2024. More information about Daniel's case is to be found at the Instagram account free dan baker you can contact support at dan donations at gmail.com you can donate to his support on paypal with that same email and you can find his amazon wish list in the instagram account and at the time of this publication december 2021 you can write dan baker at the following address daniel allen baker number two five seven six five hyphen five zero nine FCI Memphis, Federal Correctional Institution, P.O. Box 34550, Memphis, Tennessee 38184. To hear the longer interview on this case or to read the transcripts of the interview, check out The Final Straw Radio's broadcast from December 5th, 2021 at thefinalstrawradio.noblogs.org.
4: Thank you. Before we go to the updates on a case against anarchists in Russia, more music, Vicious Irene with Scum. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.
3: Today, only one update, which is a uh, good news department of the bad news for Chile. And it's also surprisingly coming from Russia, which is also not the place with a lot of good news uh, in the last um, decades. <laughs> and um, the thing is that there are two anarchists uh, which were uh, released. It's um, Dmitry Tsubukovsky and uh, his wife, Anastasia Safonova. They are from Chelyabinsk. And long time ago, at the uh, beginning of 2018, they were doing an action in the support of a network case. Uh, they were putting a banner on the local FSB, the Federal Security Service, not on the building, but on the fence of the local FSB, a banner which uh, said FSB is the main terrorist. And there was at some point a criminal case uh, against them open. They were arrested first and tortured also with electric shock. And then uh, accused in uh, vandalism and hooliganism motivated by political hate and hostility. The case was twice dismissed because of lack of evidences but then reopened again and they got at the 10th of September uh, this year. It means we got two and a half years and uh, Anastasia uh, two years of prison only for the banner action. And now the regional court overturned the sentence of them. And it doesn't mean that the case is closed. Now uh, back into the original course, so it's like a third time <laughs> turned back. Um, but they are now uh, free from prison, and we'll see uh, what will what will go on further. But it's like a really violent situation which is going on now from the 2018. With this criminal case, and they already moved from Chilabinsk somewhere else, and was uh, were arrested again, and then somewhere there and brought back, and it's like, pff, I don't know, never-ending story.
10: It's crazy. It makes me really angry. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to emphasize this.
3: Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's uh, even the good news from Russia sounds uh, wired, right?
10: I mean. You With know, all the torture and and things they faced, it's kind of, uh, I know. Yeah, I mean, it's better if they don't have to go to prison on top of all this, mm-hmm. of this shit. But uh, it's it's crazy. It's yes. incredible.
3: Yeah, and the part of the sentence they already made through so. I know, it's like it's also, you know, the Russian law is a uh, logic law, is like if somebody already was in prison, you can't really let them out, right? Um,
10: it's like a train, you cannot stop this. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, uh, or like minimum, uh, if uh, it's uh, now back and will be reconsidered, then they will definitely get the minimum they already were, uh, sent, uh, were having in prison because nobody want to pay them money back for...
10: Obviously, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that's the same here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, apart that, um, that's really another level of repression. Music. Yeah, after this nice uh, street sounds we're going to listen to some punk music from Alarm Signal. Maybe you want to add something to uh
3: It's just uh, actually a new release from the Berlin based um, band Alarm Signal called Revolutionary Action and they have a video release on this song with the participation of a lot of other um, bands from Germany with a lot of solidarity with different people and I think it's quite a nice one. (laughs)
11: Social radio 1431 a.m. Trigger Warning Femicides November was the month in which three more femicides took place in Greece in the span of a little over a week. On the 27th of November, a 48-year-old woman was killed by her husband by knife, counting 23 knife wounds. The murderer went straight to the police and claimed that he did it out of jealousy. This tactic was proposed by a high-ranking police officer some months prior, after the murder of a 20-year-old woman whose murderer and husband was lying for two months about the murder, stating that if the murderer has confessed sooner, the police would have shown compassion. In the 29th, not even two days later, another woman, a 36 year old was killed by her husband, who followed the instruction of confessing right away at the police station too. Hoping for compassion and a decrease sentence. In the 5th of December, a 29-year-old woman was beaten to death by her husband. Her family stated that she was seen with bruises and wounds regularly and that the murderer was forbidding her from visiting them. The official number of femicides for this year recognized by the media is 17, the count recognized by a femicide watch platform is 25, but for sure these are only the known ones. On Monday, October 25th, a worker was killed in the port of Piraeus in the interest of the company Costco. The worker fell victim to the company's practices where he and his colleges were imposed to counter sieves without rest, understaffed posts, lack of basic security, placement of untrained employees in specialized positions, etc. This event acted like a catalyst, immediately pushing the top workers to go on a massive strike, which was declared abusive and excessive by the authorities. Despite that, the mass participation of top workers and the solidarity from the Greek political movement as a whole, as well as the solidarity from foreign trade unions, helped to continue their efforts with repeated 48 hour strikes. The demands that were expressed by the employees through their union were the abolition of counter seats, the existence of a six-hour post, as well as the establishment of health and safety committees staffed by the employees themselves to control the protection measures. After seven days, COSCO sent an official letter committing itself to fulfill the demands. However, although the top workers won this battle, they continue this days with a new 48-hour strike demanding the signing of a new collective labor agreements and full-time contracts for all the employees. On November 26, comrades Kalejips and Mataragas, member of the Anarchist Collective Urvigonas, were unanimously innocent by a mixed jury for the accusation of the execution of the drug dealer nicknamed Habibi in Exarchia in 2016. The story of the case begins in 2020 where the Greek state, while trying to target the collective Rubiconas and the Greek anarchist movement as a whole, filled the case with the accusation of moral instigation of the murder for Kalaitzidis and the actual commitment of murder for Mataragas. The case was based on fabricated Fabricated testimonies where Matarakas was somehow recognized as the hooded executioner of Habibi, and on a post on, by Kalajidis on Facebook where he had reported the attack of Habibi with a knife on him after an incident caused by the former in Exarchia Square calling on mass struggle to drive the drug mafia out of the area. During the trial, collectives from all over Greece and abroad showed their solidarity with anti report events and actions, where solidarity collectives were created. Some of the most characteristic actions were the 308 people that were legally declared as defense witnesses and the creation of the documentary on order. It was finally revealed in court that the key prosecution witness testified under pressure from the police. As he told the court, the cops promised that if she cooperated with them, she would be released as she was arrested for drug trafficking and was under the influence of drugs. It is important to note that the other persecution witnesses were also accused of drug cases and were in the heads of, of the police as they were forced to testify by indicating the two members of the bigonas. Finally, let us emphasize that this is not the first trial with a fabricated indictment that has been set up by the Greek, Greek state for the two comrades and the collective, but also for the wider political anarchist movement. On the contrary, this practice has been used many times where despite the fragile evidence, comrades have been sentenced to years in prison or have been remanded for years in custody until they were finally acquitted.
12: to So hello, do we hear each other? Hello.
1: Hello, hello. Uh, Thanks a lot for uh, being prepared to participate with us in this interview. Um, Uh, Yes, so let's get to the topic. Uh, We hear that there has been an increase of fascist attacks, uh, either uniformed like police or not, um, on the anti authoritarian activist movement in Bulgaria. Could you briefly describe uh, what happened?
13: Yes, since the autumn of 2020 there has been a rise of fascist attacks, mainly on the LGBTQ community and youth. And one of the first notable events was the attack on the LGBTQ youth in Plovdiv and the following threats of similar actions in Sofia. And while these seem like sporadic events in the, following, in the following year, the first of all, pride was attacked by organized groups led by far-right political parties like Vazražene and Vemerov. And this organized attack continued on through Pride Month, where every event was surrounded and disrupted by neo-Nazis from different right-wing and fascist groups. And another notable event was the attack on the LGBTQ center rainbow hub in Sofia, where the office was destroyed and a girl was punched in the face by members and the leader and candidate for president of a neo-Nazi party, Guyana Seta. Um And shortly after this incident, a group of teenagers was were beaten by fascists were listening to punk music in a park in the center of Sofia. They weren't doing anything. Uh, and because Bulgaria had three elections in 2021, uh, the government was unstable, and within our community there was suspicion that this was mainly sponsored election propaganda, and it would let off after the election. However, after the first elections, after the last election, the same people from different rights and organizations that we had been facing all summer, cut through the crowd at the protest against violence against women, and tried to forcefully take the stage in the microphone. That happened two weeks ago, and this for now is the last incident.
1: So these uh, fascist attacks are actually connected to the broader political situation in Bulgaria, like you said, uh, uh, connected to the upcoming elections, you think? Mm
13: -hmm. Mm, Yes, in a way they are connected with the upcoming elections, but it's uh, also that after the last elections they continued, which to us was a little surprising, but it also shows that they have been activated and might continue despite the government being now elected
12: uh, and not surprisingly the police targets the anti-authoritarian movement but uh, does nothing against neo-nazi violence uh, what other cases of recent police repression on the anti-authoritarian movement have been there
13: so the bigotry of the police is interesting in the contrast of how they treat the neo-nazis uh, and uh, how they, the, the neo-Nazi look of march was forbidden in 2021, but the participants were allowed still to march in smaller groups and gather at the house of General Vukov, who is the leader of the fascist political party in the 40s. And a perfect example of the way the police differentiate between our progressive protest and the right-wing one is the first riding in Bukas where protesters again like, were attacked by the right-wingers, that they were throwing cucumbers, eggs, water bottles and smoke bombs at us. And the police just stood by and didn't do anything. Uh, and it's also important to mention that in the counter-protest this summer, um, the right-wingers were throwing water bottles at us and the police didn't do anything. At the Bogas Pride, the, the counter-protest wasn't supposed to, supposed to come near us, and they just threatened to leave, the, leave us, deal with the Nazis like the Nazis could deal with us, and they wouldn't protect us. Even though we had the right to be there, and we had two more hours left of our protest. However, at the feminist protest last week, one of our comrades threw a water bottle at the, at the banner of the Nazis and was immediately tackled to the ground, handcuffed and arrested, super aggressively. And at the same time, the Nazis who were at the protest were shoving and pushing and threatening people. And they were just protected by a thick line of police. And they put them in a van for a little while and they let them go a little bit later this evening. While our comrade was detained for the full 24 hours, he was trialed in the first procedure for petty vandalism and has to pay a fine now. So again, it's us who feel like we are attacked by the police and the Nazis are being protected
1: instead. Mm-hmm. So how, how is the community dealing with these pressures? Is there like a lot of solidarity between different groups or collectives in the movement?
14: Um, well, when the first attacks came about, like people from the more liberal side of our community uh, they mainly brushed it off as, as being harmless propaganda. Um, they also held the belief that we, the anti-fascists, were provoking the fascist uh, attacks by fighting against them. In one case, they even physically tried to stop us from our protest against the fascist demonstration. It's worth, worth mentioning that they were being manipulated by police who lied to them about our legal right to be there and threatened to shut down their event. However, we hope that after the latest attacks, they have started opening their eyes to the existence of active neo-Nazi organizations in our country. We show our solidarity with each other by working on informing everyone around us about what, ha- what happened, speaking up and spreading all of this information, as well as checking in with each other and making sure everyone is okay. Currently, we are organizing and thinking about how to be strong on our side and how to respond.
1: Good, uh, Chernobyl, of course, stands in solidarity with you, uh, but is there like a specific way in which our listeners can support you in any way?
13: Thank you so much for the solidarity and for having us here. Mm. And we think that what everyone can do to stay in solidarity with people being attacked by neo-Nazis in general is to speak up for them, speak up for us and for others you know of. Because if we are aware of the threat of neo-Nazis, we can be ready to stay in resistance together. And we would also be very glad to receive moral support and advice from your experiences and your knowledge in similar situations in your country, because we think we can learn a lot from one another and we would love to hear some advice and support if it's possible.
12: Um, Okay, maybe there is uh, some uh, page where people can find more information about your work and about recent incidents.
13: Yes, uh, we have an anti-fascist page. It is on Facebook and it is called Antifa Bulgaria. Uh, there you can find more information. It's mainly mainly in Bulgarian, but the uh, translate option is also always available. Yes. Uh, yeah. Antifa Bulgaria.
12: <laughs> okay. Do you want to add something else?
14: Um, I would like to add that uh, these attacks are the result of all the new fascist groups working together, and amongst them we have like political right wing parties like Vremeo and the Razdane but also neo-Nazi organizations like Penese who organized the yearly neo-Nazi look of march and more um, underground uh, groups like National Resistance and the uh, White Front which are also international yeah which are also international uh, organizations and we we have been protesting against uh, all of them for years and also the group Penese has had been investigated recently by the courts without any results. but um but we haven't been able to to push them out. And
13: we hope that may, that we can name these people and that their names will name these organizations so that everyone can know them.
14: Mm-hmm. And also what we observed is that uh, these far-right parties like Wazrasta and Zemereo, which also was in government, they, they are using these attacks as a way to promote their ideologies and their organizations. And um, yeah...
12: Okay, eh, but also as we can see from here, uh for example the protest uh, this anti-luko march we see that you are strong and we believe that you will also survive through this era. Yes, we are growing stronger every year and I
13: hope
12: we will we will for sure. Okay. Eh, so uh, thank you very much. Uh, good uh, Good fight, and uh, let's hope to see each other also in solidarity soon. Thank you yeah. so much.
13: Thank you so much. Everyone. Have a nice day. Ciao.
14: Ciao. What's the
5: revolution to you?
14: <sighs> to kill bosses and take their money. <laughs>
4: At this point, we are almost at the end of episode 51 of Bad News. We have one more song for you before the last segment about two anarchist long-term prisoners. You will find additional information, addresses of the mentioned prisoners, and links in the show notes under a-radio-network.org. We wish you the best. Next song is from The Assassinators, R for Anarchy. This is goodbye from my side, enjoy the rest of the show.
11: They get beaten and not as locked up For fighting for a world that's less fucked up And if you think different and if you misbehave They will lock you up, they will put you in a cage So let's burn,
8: burn the prisons down Burn, burn the prisons.
15: The walls that keep us from each other
4: Thomas Meyerfark is an anarchist prisoner who is locked up in Germany for 25 years now. He is very active spreading information about the conditions in prison and fighting against the prison system. He wrote some words about his time in prison and we translated it into English and shortened it a bit for this episode of Bad News. 25 years in the prison cells of Germany In October 1996, the prison gates closed behind me after I was arrested following a bank robbery that turned into a hostage situation lasting several hours. Since then I have been living in the microcosmos penal system, one of the darkest places this country has to offer. Here now a short foray through the years and prisons. The beginning, October 1996, immediately after my arrest I was taken to the prison Heilbronn for two nights, to be transferred from there to solitary confinement in the prison Stammheim. Alone 24 hours a day, the yard hour, tied up on the roof on the 8th floor, bars all around, but at least with a really appealing view, regular and intensive cell checks. I had to fight for the possession of music cities in court with the help of my lawyer because allegedly I could have sharpened the CDs on the floor and thus became into possession of a dangerous tool. Only the district court put a stop to this creative building instruction and I got the CDs handed over. I was lucky enough to have contact with friends by letter and to receive visitors, although everything was very strictly monitored. Sometimes letters took weeks to reach the recipient or me. Everything was read. Sometimes copies were kept on file or not even handed out. The Verdict Spring 1997 After a trial lasting several days, I was sentenced to 11 and a half years and subsequent placement and preventive detention. There was no doubt that I had committed the crime, because at the end of the hostage taking, I was arrested in the bank. Since I refused to express remorse in court or to cooperate in any way, the court went beyond the ten years with the sentence. The court also did not want to exclude that I would commit such a crime again, especially since I had offensively represented my attitude towards the state and especially the judiciary during the trial, which was to bring me further convictions for threats and insults later on, and so the preventive detention was ordered. Excursors, preventive detention. What is that? It was the National Socialists who introduced preventive detention into the then Reich Criminal Code with the law of 24th of November 1933. Since then the state has been able to keep people it considers dangerous in custody beyond the end of their prison sentence. Only death forms a natural upper limit for the duration of custody. The penal detention first in Bavaria until autumn 1998. At first, the judicial administration of Baden-Württemberg deported me to Bavaria, since I would have lived there last. Most of the time I sat there in solitary confinement. Before leaving the cell, I had to strip naked and change clothes. And before entering the isolation cell, the same procedure was following. All in the name of security and order. But the effect on the psyche of many of those affected is devastating. The Penal Sentence in Bruchsal until July 2013 After I successfully challenged my transfer to Bavaria in court in the fall of 1998, I arrived in Bruchsal, where I was to sit in solitary confinement until 2007. Over the years, however, I was always able to hear some of the everyday life in prison. Since the isolation cells are distributed throughout the building, someone could always come to the cell door, knock and then shout something to each other through the crack in the door. At some point I was able to win through the courts that a fellow prisoner was allowed to speak to me at the small hatch in the middle of the door. However, the prison management enforced that a staff member was always allowed to stand by to monitor the conversation. Over all the years in Bruchsal, I heard about suicides again and again. If one compares the suicide rate, it is striking that in freedom for the general population, for example, for the year 2019, a suicide rate of about 11 per 100,000 people, and for the same year, a suicide rate of 129.4 per 100,000 people is reported for prisoners. Looking at medical and psychological care, we find that there are psychologists or social workers on site for every 100 prisoners and only 0.57 physicians. In view of the high health and psychological burden on prisoners in particular, these are worrying figures. As far as I learned about suicides or other deaths, I tried to report about them. However, like almost all my mail, the content of what I wrote and published was monitored. To remember those people who had died in the cells once again in this way, I considered important from the beginning, so that they not only appear as a number in an anonymous statistic. In Bruchsal, I was always fortunate to have the support of fellow inmates who did not quite understand why I was still sitting in solitary confinement. Since the prison did not pay me any pocket money, there was always an inmate who bought me shower gel or food from the prison shopkeeper. At some point we found out that paper could be slid through a crack in the door, and so I began to handwrite statements of claim for fellow prisoners. People forwarded documents to me this way and so I was able to help other inmates defend themselves in court. In May 2007 the solitary confinement ended. I was supposed to talk to the departmental lawyer and confirm to the prison in writing that I would not commit any hostage taking a course of action that I considered quite nonsensical and refused to take for years, which is why I was judged unassessable. When I then actually had a short conversation with Chief Administrative Officer G., and wrote down on a piece of paper that I would not want to commit a hostage situation, the solitary confinement was finally lifted. Now I could finally help prisoners with correspondence without having to laboriously squeeze documents through a crack in the door. By the way, I also got pocket money now, although I would not work a single day. The topic had simply disappeared from the agenda, although there is actually a duty to work for the penal sentence. Preventive Detention in Freiburg since July 2013 I spent the first few years with dozens of court cases against the prison management and in over 100 cases I was able to stand my ground, at least in part. One case concerned the high costs for telephone services. I filed a lawsuit against the prison for the obligation to use a different provider. The proceedings ended in favor of us prisoners, even though it was to take years before a new provider was obligated. About the everyday life in preventive detention, which is often characterized by hopelessness, the dying of fellow inmates, desperate people who see and experience that they are more likely to die here than to be released in the coming years, I report regularly on my blog. The Outlook In 2023, the Freiburg Regional Court will conduct a special review of my continuation of my preventive detention. According to the Federal Constitutional Court, after 10 years of preventive detention, further placement may only take place if a personality disorder exists as a result of which there is a high risk of committing further serious crimes that could seriously harm victims mentally or physically. In the meantime, more than 20% of the inmates in Freiburg's preventive detention are sitting for more than 10 years, because the regional court is proving to be extremely resourceful in proving that the above mentioned conditions are met, so that I must expect to be held beyond 2023. But who knows, maybe there will also be a positive surprise, only hope should not be focused on miracles. I remember the consequences of a cell rate of 2019. Stickers were seized there and under the instruction of the head of the institution then handed back to me, but before they were photocopied and put on file. According to the ward psychologist W, the stickers and the fact that I had kept them would support the prison's position that I was potentially prone to violence and hostile. It was about stickers like, the whole world hates the police. That was an indisputable deposition according to Mrs. W. Since I maintain a polite manner in everyday prison life so that nothing can be extracted for a danger prognosis, such findings then have to serve. As I said, the prison is no less creative than the court. I know, however, that I am embedded in a friendly and solitary environment. I'm lucky that there are people who write to me, talk to me on phone, and visit me, that there are groups like Rote Hilfe or anarchist Black Cross and others who stand by the side of prisoners. All this makes life bearable, even behind prison walls and after such a long time, even if it would be a much fuller life if I were not in prison." Thomas Meyer Falk This was the shortened version of a letter from Thomas Meyer Falk about 25 years in prison. Also we want to remember the anarchist prisoner Rainer Leunhardt. He turned 60 in the start of December and is now locked up since 35 years, most of the time in a psychiatric unit. This long time in confinement took his toll on his mental and physical health, but he is happy to receive letters and also money. Let's never forget the prisoners, especially the ones in prison for fighting this system. We will include the addresses of both prisoners into the show notes. Feel free to write to them.
11: Systematic violence to all that objects Getting tight with your hands to your bed end. this is what they call justice This
15: is what they call bear.
8: So let's burn, burn the prisons down burn Burn the prison down let's tear apart the walls that keep us from each other let's tear apart the walls that keep us from each other
15: I knew you were safe, but you just never know in the hands of the state. So let's
8: burn! Burn the prisons down! Burn! Burn the prisons down! Let's tear apart the walls that keep us from each other. Let us tear apart the walls that keep us
15: from each other.
11: The walls that keep us from each other